The following is a production of the Event Safety Alliance. This is Steve Edelman, and welcome back to the Event Safety Podcast. Today, we're going to follow up on a conversation that we had on the last pod, uh, where we were talking with some dismay and, frankly, disgust about the recent tragedies at Coachella and also the coroner's inquest regarding the Radiohead death. And we're going to pick up where we left off, um, which was well, just sort of casting about wildly for a solution to a problem that we really think required some more grown-up and serious thought. So here's where we were. Where we were was thinking, God damn it, how do we make sites safer? How do we convince people to take seriously the concept that every time someone takes an action at a work site, they have to do it safely? How do we inculcate safety even into the minds of people who've been doing it seemingly without incident the same way for years and years? And the best thing that we came up with at that moment, you know, sort of screaming into the darkness was essentially, you know, throwing rocks at people from the town square. And that was satisfying at that time, but uh, upon further reflection really doesn't seem to be the solution. And so with that as preface, we're back um, to address that subject. What do we actually do to make work sites safer, whether it's talking about near misses or just practices that ought to be better? What do we actually do? And so we've brought in uh, three people from three different countries to talk about what are the options um, across international lines to see if we can come up with some coherent thought which is better than throwing stones from the town square. So uh, with that, I welcome uh, Don Cooper, the executive director of the Event Safety Alliance, Janet Celery from Celery Health and Safety in Ontario, Canada, and also the head of the Canadian Event Safety Alliance, and Tim Roberts from the Event Safety Shop in the UK. So Don Cooper, in the United States, whether we're talking about a near miss or just bad, unsafe, dumb practices. What are the options for somebody who's working and seeing this or is subject to it? What can they do? Well, hi, Steve. Uh, thanks for uh, including me in your podcast. I think uh, the options are numerous. Uh, I think uh, that's part of the problem. We can do anything or nothing. And I believe that's part of the issue. I think. What uh, I, representing the ESA, would like to communicate is there should probably be a process that we should commit to memory uh, to um, identify or report something or do something about an issue, say an unsafe act or a hazard that we observe. Certainly in the United States, we have uh, OSHA that allows uh, OSHA law regulations, uh, allow someone to report something to them anonymously uh, so that their name, your name, the reporter's name is not included in the report. And then OSHA, you can do this online, you can do it with a phone call or an email. Uh, and you can then, OSHA then follows up with that to uh, contact the employer or the place of the hazard and do some type of investigation. Janet Celery, 
Is there some equivalent system to OSHA in Canada? Uh, we're in an interesting position, Steve. In Canada, we have 14 different jurisdictions for health and safety, 10 provinces, three territories, and our federally regulated workplaces. So in each of those, there is a different set of legislation that applies. But what's consistent across the country is that there is in each jurisdiction a way that you can formally report. Um, in my province of Ontario, it's the Ministry of Labor, so you can make a complaint and an inspector will come in to investigate that. Um, that can be done anonymously, certainly. Uh, there's also, we have the right to refuse unsafe work, so there is a formal process that you can engage in which will cause work to stop until there's an investigation between the relevant workers and supervisor. If that's not resolved um, internally, it can go to the second stage, which involves an inspector. So those are kind of, uh, we like to think of them kind of as the last resort, because our legislation is underpinned by an idea called the internal responsibility system. It's not something that's documented in the regs or the act, but it's the idea that every person in every role has a uh, an obligation and a set of responsibilities around health and safety. And that's, I think, where we can find our greatest success is when every worker is involved in reporting, every supervisor is involved in responding, and every employer is doing their duty as well. So it's a sort of interlocking um, little puzzle of authority and responsibility. Um, so that's that's kind of just a, a really quick outline of how it would play out in Canada. I, I have to say, the idea of an internal responsibility system sounds so nice and, well, <laughs> Canadian. Uh, I can't imagine the U.S. having something that's informal that requires people to be responsible. Uh, Tim Roberts, in the U.K., is there something like an internal responsibility system? Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> uh, just back to the the original question before I jump to that is that we we have the same kind of um, legislative requirement as OSHA and uh, and uh, as Janet has said in Canada, uh, we of course dress ours up in a massive acronym called RIDOR, which is the Reporting of Incidents, Diseases, and Dangerous Occurrences Regulations, which covers everything from you know someone getting mesothelioma because they've been working with asbestos through to um, I don't know, Ebola, you know, a reportable disease. If one of your staff turns up in the morning with Ebola, you have a responsibility to report it um, to our version of the Centre for Disease Control. Um, so we have all that. We have that framework of mandatory reporting, which covers both things that have happened and things that could have happened and things that did happen but were very nearly disastrous. But it's slow. It's boring. It's relying on the grown-ups or the cavalry or whoever to come over the hill and on a short duration workspace, we're never going to get an inspection unless there's been some major, you know, serious accident and by then it's way too late. So where I would like to look at is I think again, going back to Janet's, um, you know, internal responsibility is, you know, what's our mechanism for actually getting people to do the right thing? Um, and it could well be that a, you know, a penalty of being excluded from catering for a day is actually a more onerous thing for our crew than the threat of, you know, the OSHA guy may turn up in six or eight weeks' time to check if you're still doing the wrong thing in the same place. Um, so I think we should look at the other end of it and what can we do as practitioners, either in the event business or the um, 
you know the wider sort of production fraternity to make it um, easier to call people out nobody wants to be a snitch nobody wants to be the guy kind of you know telling tales behind their back or making anonymous reports it's it's embarrassing and it's difficult and folks understandably don't want to get into a shouting match or a confrontation and quite commonly it's people with authority who are doing the wrong thing um you know in my, in my work as a safety guy i quite commonly see you know the boss who turns up for a quick walk around the factory floor is the guy in flip-flops it's it's the account handler who turns up with no hard hat um setting a very poor example so sometimes you're going directly against authority figures to call them out on their own poor behavior so i think what we should have uh, what the esa should be providing is some real simple ways of calling people out and saying hey bud that's a really, you know, you realize you nearly hit me with that or you could hit me with that or I don't want to be underneath you if you're not going to clip on, you know, I'm not going to work with you like this or some other set of phrases that we can use to actually start moving this forward and not rely on OSHA or, you know, the, the health and safety executive or the cops or whatever to turn up and uh, shake the big legislative stick at people. And I do think people are getting better at that. Um, I find that the more we can have conversations with small groups of people where they can all hear it at the same time, even if it's just that kind of five minute uh, conversation briefing at the top of a shift, just to, you know, I want people to just, let's all hear it together. Reminder, this is a PPE you need on this site today. These are the hazards you're likely to encounter on this project today. Uh, this is our expectation. And uh, like, really, we don't want to have to remind you about it. Just do it. I've, I've done some of those. I think one of the most successful, I've done a lot of those. One of the most successful ones was where I, as the safety person, gave the chat. And at the end of it, the head stage carpenter said, is there anybody here who doesn't want to wear a hard hat on this load-in? Because I want you to leave right now. I'm not having it. I don't want to be after you for the whole day. So if this is not for you, this is your opportunity to, uh, to head out. So I think we're getting a bit better. Well, that, that's kind of circling back to where we were on the last pod, which is, you know, resorting to self-help and internal processes and, and essentially the idea that on a work site, we're a community. Is that where this conversation is going? Because frankly, I thought that we were going to get a raft of, of you know, regulations and, and legislative proposals and things like that. Well, there, there is a raft of legislation and proposal, but it's, um, it's worse than useless. You know, it doesn't actually help us when you're, you know, having to go toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe on the downstage edge with the production manager or someone else about what's going on on stage. So knowing that you're right and you can be legally backed up doesn't actually help. Um, well, it, it may give you a, a warm, fuzzy glow when you're you know, rushing back to the bus or whatever um, to think that you did the right thing. But uh, it strikes me that that's just, you know, relying on what the law says is not the right, it's not the right conversation. The law is about um, enshrining safe practices to protect workers. Uh, so we're not complying with the law because it's the law. We're complying with the law because it's the way to go home safely. Uh, Tim, you've spent too much time talking to lawyers, haven't you? <laughs> not nearly enough, Steve, and your check is... Um, <laughs> Oh, hang on. What did I do with that check? It's in the <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think uh, I think you know I could uh, I could recite the regulations, but uh, you know the sound of people switching off would be overwhelming. 
Um, what's more important, I think, is to get back again to just to, to loop back to Janet's point she just made. You know, when you've got someone in the, uh, a position of responsibility who is behind you and they speak up and say, right, which one of you guys is going to work unsafely today? Because I want you to leave before you screw up. Um, you know, that's fantastic when you have that. Um, uh, you know, top cover and assurance from someone in a position of authority. Um, the real problems arise, though, when that's the goofball who's actually the one who's climbing on safely or driving the forklift without looking back when they reverse, etc. You know the sketch, you know, you've seen it a million times. Um, and it's how you then tackle that sort of mid-management. It's the supervisors that we need on side. The crew will follow, um, but the supervisors can so easily undermine good practice with, you know, casual behavior of their own. Don, Can I also turn this to you? Um, okay, go ahead. I mean, are the regulatory processes here in the U.S. as as cumbersome as Tim is describing in his experience? Actually, everything that uh, Janet and Tim described about how it's done in their respective uh, countries is is exactly what uh, OSHA does here. They also, uh, and OSHA is not the only uh, employer or regulator in the United States each state in the United States, all 50 of them have some type of approach. Some adopt OSHA standards, some um, reissue them at the local level, some invent their own and apply them. But all of them are late in the game. All of them are, you know, everybody has rules about if somebody dies or is seriously injured, have some kind of regulation about reporting that. Really where we need to focus, particularly with the ESA, is a simple message that is step by step and it really just has in my view four steps it is talking first to the person who uh, is involved in the act or provided the unsafe condition talk to your coworkers or the person that did it next uh, and frankly as an employer of a few hundred people that involves uh, labor uh, talk to your union the union has a responsibility and will want to help in safety related issues so first Talk to the person who did it and your coworkers about it. Second, you can talk to your union or some similar representative body. Third would be talk to your supervisor or your supervisor's supervisor or the production manager or someone in authority who can do something about the situation. And then only last would I suggest that something in, be invoked like calling OSHA anonymously or uh, HSE in the UK or the Ministry of Labor in Canada. Uh, that would be the last on the list, but only, and I really emphasize this only after the first three more important steps have been taken. And I think part of the reason why the sort of internal responsibility system idea is so important is that despite the expertise our inspectors may have from you know Ministry of Labor, OSHA, or HSC, wherever, they don't work in this business they typically have very little experience that's, uh, that's, that allows them to really understand some of the more unique hazards. Um, we usually, when we're lucky, have a lot of experts around us on site. And if we can kind of harness those people who really understand how you tie off on a, a outdoor stage or how you hang a moving light safely, those are the people who I think are extremely valuable to us. Um, and, you know, quite honestly, we're, we're, we're not going to see a random inspection from an inspector here, usually. 
um, they may rarely pop in, but not usually when anything's going on that's, uh, that's especially hazardous. We need to take care of that as an industry. We need to do that ourselves and we need to get a lot better about it. So, I mean, uh, I, I don't know if this is the time to sort of script a scenario, but you know, if, if somebody who is a relatively young professional is listening to this podcast and saying, well, you three smart people with, you know, years of experience, you're all talking about informal processes and, you know, talking to the person who's working on safely or talking to my union. How do I do that? Speak to that person, the young professional who really does want to keep their job. How do they approach this issue? How do they essentially call someone out in order to protect themselves or their peers? Could I uh, start the conversation then with um, what I teach uh, new employees is to uh, a respectful way to address someone who has authority over you is through questioning. So you might ask them a question that allows them to leverage their experience and their knowledge to your benefit. You might say, um, is, is that person supposed to be wearing a helmet? Is, uh, um, is that situation uh, the way it's supposed to be? Should something be different without actually suggesting anything, but allowing the person who knows more to take the lead and leverage what they know? That's one approach. Janet, you want to chime in? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, so I'm, also, I'm also thinking of, from, of it from the perspective of uh, the supervisor or the health and safety person who's observing something. And, uh, you know, I'm, I don't like to be in the role of the safety cop, but there have been times where I've seen someone doing something which I think in seconds they are going to be at risk, serious risk. And so I've, I've, you know, shouted out, hey, which is an unexpected sound to come out of my mouth. Um, but then when I actually get to them, you know, they'll stop and they'll be startled. But the next words out of my mouth are like, I'm concerned about you. You really scared me. Hold on. Let's talk about this. What, you know, you're not tied off and you're leaning way over that edge. Um, you know, I think we need to engage with people not necessarily just with that finger wagging but you know what's really critically important to me is you're about to get hurt i don't want that to happen uh and hopefully we can then take that pause and 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 look at it and go okay let's let's you know maybe we take a coffee break maybe we step aside find a, a safer solution and start again that's one of the ways i deal with it anyway what about you tim uh, well i commonly am engaged in the role of safety cop and I think what I would like to feel is that anybody on the site could come to me and report you know an unsafe condition or something they didn't feel good about no matter who they were um, and that has happened but um, <clears throat> you know the proportion of gigs that me and my team are on is very very small um, and yeah uh, yeah back to the question that um, that Steve puts us you know how can you know, a, a stagehand or someone who's perhaps, you know, new to the business and, and wanting to um, do the right thing and they've drunk the Kool-Aid and they've come to the ESA's website and they've heard people like us pontificate about how to do stuff right. Um, and they're thinking, you know, uh, my boss is doing it all wrong. You know, they're not enforcing their own rules. Um, and then when I mention it, you know, politely, they just say, oh, hard hats, you know, it's all bullshit. Don't worry, we don't have to do it because there's no one from OSHA here. 
how do they then up their own game? Um, I would say there's, uh, you know, I, 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 I can't counsel anyone to get into a fight and lose their job over something. Um, but I would counsel them to continue to do the right thing themselves, to steadfastly keep to the plot, to lead by example. And even if the example you're setting is just at the lowest, you know, you're just there as a box pusher, but man, you haven't turned up in gym shoes. You will wear your hard hat. You will wear your gloves. You're the only one with a high-vis vest on the loading dock, and everyone's looking at you like you're a dork. But hold the line. Do the right thing. Be confident that you are actually uh, you know, setting, setting a standard that these other guys should aspire to, even if they dismiss it as, as foolery and kind of just being too straight for words. Um, but that doesn't quite get to the bottom of it. The bottom of it is how do you... How do you step up and what words do you use to say, listen, boss, this isn't good enough. I don't like this or I can't work next to this guy. You know, he smells of weed. You know, this guy's had beers at lunchtime. I, I don't think that guy really does have a cherry picker ticket or the guys aren't clipping on above me and I don't want to work on this stage. How you have that conversation, I, I don't know. I haven't got a simple solution. And I think a lot of it comes down to, um, you know, there's other podcasts and I recall myself talking about it on, on the ESA website about having that own personal moment where you think I am going to do the right thing from now on. Um, and that moment often involves imminent peril to yourself or to others through your own actions. And you think, God, I just got away with it. From now on, I'm going to do the right thing. And that kind of gives you the cojones and the, the you know, the, the sense of self-respect to actually not storm into the production office and start jabbing people in the chest with your finger and saying, you guys need to get your shit together. But it's more a question of feeling confident when you do have an exchange, say, look boss, I really don't like the way this is going. Or could you mention, you know, I don't know how to tell the stage manager, but he keeps leaving the cases in a really unsafe position on stage. What can I do about it? Um, try and have the conversation is I think the best that I can offer get stuck in, know that you're going to be backed up, um, know that ultimately the law is on your side in all three of our territories. If you uh, raise a safety concern and you are disciplined because of it or ostracized or somehow you're not on the crew call next time round because you're seen as a troublemaker, then the law is on your side to protect your right to work, to protect your employment, uh, to protect your income if you're doing things in the interest of workplace safety. Um, can, yeah, I, so can I add on to that a little bit? I, I want to introduce the the concept, which Tim has defined really well, of a safety culture. Uh, Janet also um, introduced the ideas that some of us take for granted, but we really need to talk about. You know, leading by example and, and having an air of, in a toolbox talk or a toolbox chat, mentioning that you will wear your helmet just like I will. Um, these are things that affect the culture of safety. Is That's something that's an underpinning. It's a foundation of everything else we do. If we're not always talking about it and thinking about it and talking about how I'm concerned for your safety because what you do affects me and that, as OSHA says, a little bit different than they do in Canada is that safety is every single person's responsibility. That's the type of culture, uh, the type of behavior and thinking that I think will lead to a natural way. I, I believe Tim's correct that I've been on his sites when he's the safety cop and I can tell you that it's easy to go to him and say, you feel comfortable saying, this doesn't seem right. And he will take it seriously and do something about it. That's because he and the environment fosters a culture of safety. 
if we don't have that, if we have the opposite, then it, well, safety will never be achieved. So I think you're, we're looking at this as a conversation. And with every conversation, there are two roles. One is the person who's talking and one is the person who's listening. And then ideally, we go back and forth. So what I see is we really need to teach people how to speak up with confidence. Um, and that's a brave thing we have to teach them to do because sometimes it's not going to be welcome. But we also need to teach the supervisors and the department heads and the technical directors and the managers how to receive those conversations and how to respond um, because sometimes there can be a quick rush to discipline or a quick rush to brushing someone off without really listening with you know, listening without judgment to what they're coming to you with. Um, and it's, it is the safety culture that makes, we need to think about how we respond to those people who speak up. Do we listen to them? Um, do we treat them with respect? Or do we ridicule them? Because oh, the moment so someone gets brushed off, they are not ever going to come back to you. So if you look at someone like Tim, who's on the site, who people feel comfortable with, he will take the time, he will listen, he will support, he will uh, help. Um, that's going to take everybody on that site forward. But it only takes one person to make the, the guy who spoke up a laughing stock to make it so that that guy will never feel comfortable speaking up again. Yeah, it, the culture of safety includes it's okay to challenge uh, someone's activities. If you, you'll either learn from it, oh, that is acceptable, or maybe you're, you're teaching someone else that maybe didn't notice that something that's being done is not as safe as it could be. So in, in my realm where I'm dealing with lawyers and you know, statutes and regulations, kind of the standard first line of defense is, well, somebody's gonna get sued. That doesn't sound like it's really the first line of defense or even a second or third line of defense based on what you guys are saying. It's kind of out there, but in order to get results in real time, it sounds like we have to resort to talking yes. and actually raising the issues ourselves. And having the courage to do so, to talk to your coworkers and know them well enough to, to to convey the fact that you care about them. And by the way, what you do affects me and my family and whether I go home safely tonight and that there are people that are willing to represent you. You might have a union, you might have a supervisor, someone that you can ask about this. If you're, if you're unsure of whether you really did witness an unsafe act, you can ask, is that acceptable? Was that okay? I wanna learn from this because I certainly wanna be safe. And then if all else fails, we call the lawyers. <laughs> I, th I think there's an, even, there's an even deeper level of courage required than having the difficult conversation. And that means some people need to look inside themselves and go, hey, I'm actually doing the right thing here. Um, you know, no doubt uh, Chris, you know, could have been, he could have been sued for unsafe work practices at Coachella before he fell to his death. He could even have thought about falling to his death on the stage, but neither of those things were actually strong enough, <laughs> you know, for him to decide to do the right thing and clip on and not fall to his death, which is tragic. 
because uh, because what because there's an assumption that gravity doesn't apply well no what is it is it that we've done it this way for years or you know we in the rock and roll business treat this like a rodeo and falling off is just kind of part of the day-to-day -day risk of doing the gig i don't think any of those things really hold water um and some of those older attitudes you know the, the courage is to look at yourself and go actually am i part of the problem here or am i part of the solution um, you know, we don't want OSHA or the HSE in regulating our business and strangling us um, and saying, you know, even even a front stage edges work at height. Therefore, you know, we must have a handrail across the front of every concert stage. Craziness, but that's the way the law may apply. So, uh, you know, we, everyone listening to this should think of their own behavior, their own assumptions, their own ability to point the finger and laugh and go, ha, 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 yeah, look at that idiot in the high vis or whatever and just genuinely think about the way you work and behave and interact and are you working for safety and well-being and the long-term you know economic viability of our sector your company your business whatever it may be um, and that's actually the hardest of all things to do is to look at yourself rather than point the finger at others and I'd like to highlight something Tim just said that I think is really important particularly in a bigger picture um, if we don't do something about it someone else will and it may be through a regulation. It may be in a way that is not only uh, contrary to making actual progress or, or doing something well, it will impede our progress. It may be far more, um, I don't know, restrictive than, or problematic than anything we could do just by trying to uh, um, resolve it through talking. So I have a question now for each of you, and you can tussle over who addresses it first or last. Um, here we've been talking about essentially taking a personal approach, having someone talk to the person who's in charge or the person who's behaving unsafely on the site rather than resorting to some cumbersome and time-consuming regulatory process. Have you actually seen that? And if so, how did it go? Talking to people directly, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the most successful way. I sometimes feel like we're drawing people into a safer approach to work one person at a time. And, you know, there's some TV, uh, is there a commercial, you tell one person and they'll tell one person. You know, I, I think having a personal approach to it is, uh, is critical. You know, it's not just about sections of legislation. It's about the people we care about, the people we work next to during a call. And I've, I've certainly seen it be really successful. I've seen, uh, you know, especially with supervisors. Supervisors often get promoted to a supervisory role because they've been there a while, they're reliable, but they're not often taught how to be a supervisor in our business. And so once they have some knowledge and once you sort of help them to fulfill their responsibilities. I have tremendous confidence in a lot of the supervisors once they've had the training that they can, so that they feel like they can make these kinds of decisions and provide this kind of support. So I'm not sure if I even answered anything close to what your question was, um, but I think those individual one-on-ones and helping people, you know, they learned how to rig a stage, but now they need to learn how to have conversations about safety. We can help them do that better. I think ESA has a huge role in that. 
I think you've you've hit a really important point there, Janet. That um, often supervisors on crews are appointed on the basis of them having, uh, you know, perhaps the best level of skill at doing the particular job and knowledge, um, uh, or perhaps they've just been doing it longest. Um, uh, and what that does is devalue or fail to value um, the key skill of managing people, which is different to just knowing the job really well. And managing people is, uh, you know, it's not just about barking at them and giving them the crew call sheet. Managing people is coaching them, mentoring them, setting an example to them, calling them out gently at first, and then actually saying, no, hang on, this is really, this is the way my crew works. If you're going to be on my team, you have, you know, it's my way or the highway. Um, and I think we've consistently undervalued that kind of managerial skill in a way that perhaps, you know, an organization like, uh, I don't know, Walmart, you know, they, they don't just give the keys to a store to someone because they've been there the longest. They give the keys to the store and they ask them to manage the, you know, the stock and the staff and all the rest of it because they have been through a training program. They understand how to speak to people, how to set objectives, how to assess whether those objectives have been met. You know, it's kind of simple stuff, but it needs to be seen as a core skill that is separate to simply knowing that pin A goes into slot B and then you attach it to the crane. Um, so I, I think, you know, we could do well, and this is part of the general growing up of the rock and roll business. We could do well to adopt some of those more fundamental management techniques that we see in pretty much every other sector because they've been doing it for kind of 100 years or so, and we've only been doing this for uh, less than half a century, really. So we're, we're catching up on those skills. And I think also a lot of people come into our business because they don't want to be a straight peg. You know, they want to do new and different stuff and be creative. Great. Excellent. I understand that. I want those people. I want to be near them. I want to work with them. And I appreciate their endeavors. But that doesn't mean you can't do it safely. You know, um, working safely is the most creative thing possible. Um, there's nothing going to blow a show or a budget quicker than... Um, and dying on the job. And I, my observation is that the most motivated, passionate people I know in this industry that care about safety are the ones who have witnessed or had um, a deep personal connection to a tragedy. Um, I think nothing motivates you more than saying, oh my, I, I don't ever want that to happen to me or anyone I care about or anyone who works with me or for me. And I think the regulations, interestingly, the regulations are written, uh, and when I talk about it, I say that they're written in the blood of those who perished to teach us the lesson that comes from the, the rules, the regulations, the laws. Are we really that dim that we have to wait for so many people to perish, uh, for us to learn the lesson that, hey folks, you really should follow some just basic safety rules. Put your helmet on, wear those steel toes, wear a harness. Those things are not um, said lightly or not without significant payment to, to something that's happened in the past. I'd like to find a way to communicate and talking uh, is the best way talk to people about why some people are so passionate about it. Tell that story. The why am I, does it matter so much to me? Well, let me tell you what my experience was. If I did that, if I told people about the, the many times that I've seen tragedies occur and, and how graphic and horrible it is, I think maybe it might help. 
It might be gruesome, it might be unfortunate, it might be sad, but it may get us to a point where we rise the level of safety culture a little bit. So we're now affecting people's beliefs and values and their attitudes and their, their perceptions and eventually their, their competencies and patterns of behavior. Those are all parts of the definition of a culture of safety that I look forward to um, getting closer to as we continue this conversation. So if I understand correctly from what I'm hearing from you three, um, throwing rocks at people is not the solution? Is that, is that what I'm hearing? So um, Don Cooper, Janet Celery, Tim Roberts, I guess I'll have to put the big stones away. Um, you know, Janet, you said that Canada has an internal responsibility system, and I poked fun at you about that. But that really does seem to be the point of this conversation, isn't it? That this is for us to solve. This is for each person to participate. You know, truly safety is, you know, Tim, you said, you know, working safely is the most creative thing possible. And so we are a creative industry. We are all in this because we don't want to simply be technicians. We want to be creators. And I personally find that really empowering. And so, you know, with, frankly, some relief, I put away the heavy stones and, you know, the image of stocks in the town square and rotten fruit. And I think about actually having a conversation amongst people who all share at least one value, which is working this show and then going home to a family and then going back to work at the next show and not having a serious injury or calamity story to report because somebody simply spoke up. And I think that's I agree, a really positive image. I, I think um, we should reserve the right to keep a little pile of stones somewhere um, because actually calling people out and sometimes embarrassing the heck out of them um, is the way to bring them to um, actually good behavior. Embarrassment is a very, very powerful emotion. I think Facebook has that taken care of. <laughs> the photos I was seeing today about the uh, video wall that got uh, that fell from above that's going to make a difference to a lot of people working on that show and I'd like to suggest that now what we're talking about is uh, what I'll refer to as near miss reporting I think there is a way that we um, deal with things that are right in front of us acts that are unsafe where we talk to our coworkers, we maybe talk to the union, we may talk to our supervisor, then maybe even eventually some regulatory body like OSHA or HSE. But near misreporting is a different issue. When that light falls and lands right next to you and you look around and think, that could have killed me, that needs to be reported in a different way. But not just to coworkers, not just to maybe your union, but maybe all of them, some way, there needs to be a way for someone safely and correctly be able to report that so just frankly so it doesn't happen again if that's possible i think that's a really good point don and uh, you know standard kind of uh, safety um safety analysis or safety theory is that there's a x hundred near misses for every serious accident and x hundred serious accidents for every uh, accident that turns out to be fatal um, and if only we responded to the, you know, the indicators from the near misses that showed us that something was going to go badly wrong fairly soon, um, it is absolutely 
true. Where, where our problem is in the event business is that we're pretty poor at reporting near misses. We don't really generally like paperwork unless you're a safety geek like me. Um, uh, and a bunch of problems arise in that, you know, nobody wants to fill the form in. The form itself is difficult and counterintuitive and puts people off putting the right data in it. And then what do you do with the form? And when the person reads the form, do they just file it in the bin or do they do anything about it? Um, and these are, you know, structural issues, not just for our business, but for any business. Um, and, and oddly enough, just this afternoon before I came on the call, I had the fortune the good fortune to speak to a woman here in the UK called Samantha Gruskin, um, who made it her, uh, her thesis project um, at university. She works in the theatre and TV industry here in the UK, um, looking at near misreporting. And I'll send some of her material and her article um, to the ESA, and maybe we can put it up on the website alongside this podcast. But Samantha had some really good insights, um, you know, simple redesign of forms, simple ways of trying to get the right data out of people that really makes sense to improve this so that we can actually understand what the bigger picture is. However, no matter how fantastic those forms are, if people don't feel they have a, a need to fill something out or report, then we're not going to we're not going to move forward. You know, how many, how many times do people climb unsafely before somebody falls? And is there, is every one of those a near miss? Um, you know, how many, how many icebergs did the Titanic nearly hit? Um, well, I guess probably only one or two because it only did one journey. So they didn't have a particularly good strike rate, I guess. Um, but it's very hard to tell what was a near miss. Um, if, if it never actually turns into an accident. But uh, I think it's, uh, it's worth if the ESA can do so just to host some of, uh, you know, Samantha's article and a couple of examples of her work. Uh, it's good, instructive, informative, and could help us uh, get a better picture of what's going on in our business. Even if we could capture only the obvious ones, uh, I think we'd be far ahead. Capture the obvious near misses, but also the results of that investigation. Did we do anything different afterwards? Did we create a procedure? Did we, you know, and, and sometimes the procedure isn't about the piece of paper and all the words there. It's about the conversation about how are we going to make sure this doesn't happen next time? Those, that's the value, I think. Agreed. So let's see if we can tie a bow around this. Again, we started from a point of frustration and anger and thinking about heavy stones. And it sounds like there is still a place for that. Um, whether it's social media or some other form of shame, um, that's the stick. There's also obviously the carrot of actually talking to other people on the work site, like responsible grown-ups who all want to live and work another day. And then there is the cumbersome regulatory process, which has its important place in this in this scheme, this sort of spectrum of responses, because frankly, if people don't try every approach, then we risk being the one for whom there isn't enough safety for us. And so we always want to do at least as much as we can, because we don't ever want to be the last one for whom there is not enough safety for us. But I also suggest that the shame uh, element be really a last resort. Certainly, we should try everything else before that. I, I hope my colleagues would agree. Um, that, that should be something you jump to early. I think we need to be cautious if we choose that approach. 
Yeah, and the, the other side of this that we haven't even touched on is rewarding the good behavior. You know, um, may, maybe it's worth on every gig invest, you know, a hundred bucks in a nice shiny new leather man or a torch or whatever and ostentatiously give it to the crew member who has been working fastidiously and safely and reward that person um, uh, and set an example and say, that was great. Well done, buddy. Really appreciate it. Here, here's something to say thanks. You did a really good job. You were a leader in your own way, in your own team. Appreciate you. Thank you. Boom. I love that idea. It's 100 too. bucks well spent, huh? Yeah. And it's not a round of beers. <laughs> Although, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe, maybe they get to eat an artist catering for one meal. <laughs> You're big on catering ideas, Tim. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm, I'm big on catering physically, physiologically. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is an excellent place to end this podcast. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Tim Roberts, Janet Celery, Don Cooper, and of course, Jacob Warwick in the background making this all possible. I am Steve Edelman. Thank you for listening to the Event Safety Podcast. Until next time, uh, work safely. <laughs> <laughs>